Uh, If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. As we are continuing our way through the text, through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. It's been a couple of weeks. We had a couple of different things going on. Joint service with Grace Life, ordination last week. And so it's been a few weeks since we've been back to Matthew. I trust that you will know right where we are. And so we can pick up right where we left off. And we come to the Lord this morning, to his word in Matthew chapter 15. And so we will hear the Lord speak to us in his word. And we'll pray and ask the spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to understand what God is doing. And then we will get to work. So if you will, join with me. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells us, father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. Some of your translations may say korban, uh, which essentially means the same thing. What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you When he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we pray, God, that you would open our our eyes to see this morning what you are saying to us. We pray, Father, that you would shine upon this text with your spirit, that you would illuminate the passage before us, that it would make sense as we hear the explanation, that your word, God, would be implanted in our souls. We pray, Father, that your spirit would open our minds to see it, to understand it, and that you would quicken our hearts, Lord, by your spirit. You would enable us to believe it, to have faith in it. And together, Lord, with these things, understanding and faith, we pray that we would be a faithful witness and a faithful testimony. We would present a faithful testimony to the world around us of the truth of your good word and your love for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, when Shanti and I first moved to the home that we're living in right now, we decided we wanted to go around and introduce ourselves to all of our neighbors and and just share with them that we were living in that house and just to kind of share with them a little bit about us. And also, we wanted to invite them to church if, if they weren't already involved in church. And as we were going from door to door, knocking on home after home, we met one particular individual, a fellow who lives down the street from us, and as, I, as he, we were, I was introducing myself to him, he was, of course, sharing with us a little bit about the individuals who had lived there previously and, and talking about some of the things that they liked to do. He made mention of the fact that they had a, an RV that they had parked in the driveway and they went camping on a regular basis, from which he segued and he said, so what do you, what do you like to do on the weekends? 
And, uh, you know, I, I'm quite busy on Sundays most of the time. And so I said, well, I, I like to worship the Lord Jesus on Sundays. I'm a pastor. That's what I do. And, of course, that, that's when the conversation got just a little awkward. Um, he obviously doesn't go to church on Sundays. And uh, so I was just trying to give him an honest and, and straightforward answer. And uh, in response to that, he, he explained to me that he believes in Jesus but does not believe in organized religion. Believes in Jesus, but does not believe in organized religion. And so, of course, we, we talked about this quite a bit. I think that what he is alluding to more than anything else is that he has had, or he knows individuals who have had bad experiences in church, who have had unfortunate uh, encounters in church. I think that uh, there's probably a lot of legitimacy to this, that you know he's not the only one. As I look around this room here, and I consider the individuals who are gathered here on a weekly basis, we have individuals that have come from all manner of different church backgrounds and have had all manner of different experiences, some of them positive, a lot of them wonderful, some of them negative, some of them hurtful. And if we ourselves haven't experienced anything negative or hurtful about our church experience, I'm willing to bet most of us know at least somebody who has. And so this individual's reaction against church, uh, his, his statement, I don't believe in organized religion, it may have come from a heart, number one, that doesn't really know the Lord, or it could just be sort of the pendulum swing reacting against negative experiences that he, he may have had. I'm not entirely sure which one. I, I don't know. However, I think that if I could go back and have this conversation with my neighbor all over again, what I would say to him is that you go too far. Regardless of whatever negative church experience you might have had, you go too far to say that as a result of a bad experience with a particular church, that organized religion altogether is wrong. I think that Christ touches on some negative elements that can come about as a result of organized religion. He is not denigrating organized religion. I want you to look in verse 3. His response to the Pharisees, he makes this statement, why do you break, notice this word, the commandment of God. Why do you break the commandment of God? Now, when Jesus says, why do you break the commandment of God? We understand that there is a Lord in heaven, that he has spoken, that he has made statements. And we understand that those statements, he makes promises, he gives reassurance, he promises blessings. But at the same time, he also gives commandments. A commandment is an order. An order, by definition, is something that you want individuals to do as they come about organizing their life. When Christ says, God has given commandments, when the Bible says God commands, when the scriptures testify to the fact that God has given us, given us a commandment, this is all intended for us to respond in faith and obedience to what the Lord has said. It would require us organizing our lives around what the Lord has said. So a knowledge of Christ and a knowledge of the Father above, we understand as we walk with him, as we have a relationship with him, we're going to organize, we're going to structure that relationship in a certain way as the Father would command us. Which means that anyone who is going to say that they have a relationship with Jesus, if they're going to have a meaningful relationship with Jesus as the Lord of the universe, they're going to have to come to terms with the fact that he commands organized 
worship. And this is not a bad thing. We like order. We like the fact that we can get in our car, go out onto the street, and everybody is sticking to their side of the freeway. We like that. We like the fact that when we pull out our iPhone and we hit the uh, on button, the home screen button, it turns on. We like that. We like the fact that we can go to grocery stores and buy groceries. We like the fact that we can subscribe to uh, magazines and, and journals and periodicals, and those will be delivered to our home on a regular basis. We like the fact that in exchange for money or uh, you know, having the medical, BC medical insurance plan, we can go to our doctor and he will actually care for us and treat us. But even beyond all of the actual organized activities of society, which we like, if one were simply to pay attention to the universe that the God has created, we like the changing of the seasons. We like the fact that the sun is going to come up at a certain time. Uh, you know, it fluctuates from day to day, but we like the fact that the sun is going to come up, that the world is going to continue to turn, that there's going to be a changing of the seasons. We like the fact that the universe has order to it. If the universe bear, bears witness to the fact that God is a God of order, then it would only be fitting that as we walk in a relationship with him, he would order that relationship. Which leads me to the second point. If God orders our relationships, and if he asks for order in our worship, and we're having negative experiences in churches, it has to be that those churches, it can be one of two things, either really we were the sinful party in whatever negative experience we had, or it could be that we're a part of churches that are not truly ordering, organizing their worship the way that the Lord would have us to. We want a relationship with the Father, and we understand that God fundamentally is a God of order and organization. We understand that, that would be make, it would make perfect sense to have organized religion. Then the critical issue is, are we organizing our worship? Are we organizing our devotion the way that he would have us to? And if we know anything from the scriptures, we know that if there's one thing Satan likes to do, he wants to try and inject a little deception. He wants to try to inject a little subterfuge and chaos. He wants to try and in his own way disorder our worship in order to hinder our knowledge of the Father. And this is the critical issue of what Jesus is addressing in this text before us today. So start with me at the beginning. The Pharisees come to Jesus and his disciples, and they have a problem. They have a question that they're going to ask him. The question that they say, if you look in verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Their critical issue, again, they're, they're trying to catch Jesus in some wrongdoing. They're trying to impugn his character, but they haven't actually observed him doing any of this. But it doesn't matter. He's got these guys, these 12 apostles, and beyond that, a whole crew of people that are following him. And they've observed something about these guys, and they're figuring, okay, we're going to nail Jesus because Jesus, he obviously knows his disciples are doing something that is wrong, and yet he is not reprimanding them. He is not rebuking them. And here's their gotcha card. Not, well, we saw your disciples speeding on their donkey the other day. <laughs> They're endangering countless lives by speeding on their donkeys. Nothing like that. Nothing critical. or Look at the sinister accusation that they bring. Look at the 
earth-shattering, fundamental evil that they're going to slam his disciples for. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Now, if you were to ask my daughters, they would tell you that this is actually a big deal. In my home, it's, you know, we try to instill all those good hygiene practices, you know, at a young age. I'm not in any way saying that you shouldn't wash your hands before you eat, and that's not the thrust of what Jesus is about to say here. You need to understand the level to which the Pharisees are elevating this. You need to understand the level to which they're taking it. In the Old Testament law, there were uh, a number of uh, foods that you could eat. If you ate those foods, those foods in and of themselves would defile you. There were in the Old Covenant, in Old Testament Israel, there were certain restrictions on certain foods that you could eat. In addition to this, you as an Israelite, if you touched, for example, a dead body or, or if you engaged in there are a number of different things you could engage in, those activities that you would engage in could defile you as an Israelite. In order to come back to worship the Lord, in order to come back and have uh, some temple sacrifice according to Old Covenant, Old Testament tradition, there were certain practices that were prescribed in the Old Covenant law, certain things you had to wash, you know, certain rites of purification that you had to go through. Now, what these guys are saying is, a long time ago, we had some elders who were thinking through all of this stuff, and they were thinking, okay, well, there are some certain things that the average Israelite can do in, during the normal, ordinary course of his day, working out in the field. He might come across a dead cow, or you know, any number of different things could happen. And so, because there's the potential that some of these guys, during the ordinary course of their day, could come into contact with something impure, uh, and because we know that there are certain foods that you can eat, that in the eating of those foods you might become impure, then we're going to take this rule, this law of eating impure foods, and this rule of touching impure things, and we're just going to put those things together and just say, you know what, here's what we're going to do, just to make sure we're all on the up and up on this whole deal, you have to wash your hands before every meal. Now, for you and me, that's nothing. I go to my kitchen sink, I flip on the faucet, I get the little soap out of the pump, wash my hands, it's fine. We have God's grace in the amazing technological marvel of running water. Understand why this is a big deal. They prescribe running water. In the same way that we want to run clean water over our hands when we wash our hands, they prescribed the same thing back in the day. Only difference is they didn't have plumbing. Where is there running water? The river. You can go get some water down at the well that will be relatively clean, and you can pour that over your hands. At the end of the day, every family has to cart so many gallons of water, so many liters of water for them to drink, to cook, to wash their clothes, take care of basic hygienic purposes, and when you actually have to walk by foot down to the river or the well, as the case may be, fetch your water, get it by the leader on giant jars that you then have to lug home, you're looking for ways to be efficient. You're looking for ways to cut down on water usage. All of us here are buying washing machines that use less water because we have to pay our water bill. And we don't want to pay a water bill. We want to not pay more money than we need on our water bill. 
So we're all looking for energy efficient, water efficient, more efficient appliances. Just imagine if you have to lug that stuff on your shoulders. You want to cut on a few pennies. That's great. Imagine cutting on a few extra miles of walking and lugging water on a daily basis. So this is a bit of an onerous task. This is a bit of a burden. Notice their question that they're asking. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So these are the religious big shots. These are the religious gurus. And here's their question. And the fundamental nature of their question does not have to do with washing hands. It doesn't have to do with maintaining ritual purity. The fundamental nature of their question has to do with respect for tradition. Makes the statement in verse 2. They make the statement to Jesus. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now, notice what is most concerning is what comes first. If they were most concerned about the fact that they got some undefiled people running around in the midst of them, they'd say, whoa, whoa, you guys are unclean. That's not what they lead with. They lead with, why do you guys break tradition? A fundamental question that they're asking is, why do your disciples not honor or respect or give tribute to the tradition? It's not really about the tradition, though. No, it's about what the elders of previous generations have taught. That's the issue. That's the question. Now, we're tempted at this point to say, so really what Jesus is saying is that all tradition is wrong. We're tempted at this point in our interpretation of this text to immediately jump to the conclusion that what Jesus is about to say here is basically chuck all tradition in the gutter. You don't need tradition. Forget it. Just do whatever the Bible says. You'd be thinking that's what Jesus is saying. There's a problem with this, though. Keep your finger here and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. I want to show you something really quick. Turn with me over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to put this passage in context so you understand where I'm going with this. But before I put it in context, I'm just going to read you the verse. Now, we accept that this is inspired by God. We believe that every word in this text is totally consistent and in harmony with every other word in this text. We get that, okay? So now listen to what Paul is going to say here in chapter 2, verse 15. I'll put it in context, but first just hear the statement. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the <gasps> traditions. Hold to the traditions. Notice what he says here. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Go back with me to Matthew. Oh, sorry. No, stay there. I got more. To, I, let me put that in context for you. I'm cheating. Sorry. Context. Context is king. Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica, stand firm. Stay strong. Stay in the gospel. How do we do that? Stay strong. Stay in the gospel. Hold firm. How do we do that? By holding to tradition. Greek word there, something that is handed down. Like a tradition. Something that's handed down. That's the root meaning. In case you're wondering, that's the same meaning as what the, the Pharisees and Jesus are using when they use that word tradition back in Matthew chapter 15. And Paul says here that you hold firm, that you stay true 
by holding on to the traditions that you have been taught. Traditions in and of themselves are not bad, and that is not the thrust of what Jesus is about to say. Although we're all tempted to jump to that conclusion, that is not what Christ is saying. So, when people say, you know what, let's just throw all church history to the wind, you know, let's throw out denominational labels, let's throw out the fact that we're Baptists, let's just, let's just be Christians, let's just call ourselves Christians. The thrust of Scripture is not saying the tradition is wrong. But as this verse in context is going to show us, what is at issue, what is at stake, is the source of the tradition. Go back to verse 13. Look at what Paul says there. Brothers, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The two things that are operative, the two things that are foremost in Paul's mind are that these are legitimate Christians, these are legitimate God-fearing men and women, and he's giving thanks for them, and he is saying that they need to be sanctified, that one of the things that they're looking towards is that they would become more and more like Christ through two things. Number one, the Spirit's working in their life and knowledge of the truth. So knowing the truth is important. And from that, he goes on to verse 14, to this, to what? To knowledge of the truth and, spirit, and sanctification by the Spirit. To that, God has called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the goal here, the source is truth, the agent is the Spirit, and the goal towards which these people need to be pressing is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth, Spirit, Jesus, in that order, knowing the truth, being sanctified by the Spirit, and becoming like Christ through traditions that have been handed down by Paul. The source of the tradition is critical. And the traditions that the apostles are handing over to the early churches are traditions that are firmly rooted in apostolic teaching so apostolic tradition, apostolic authority, that is the teaching of the apostles, forms the basis of the tradition, which means that any tradition that we have, it isn't so much the tradition itself that is wrong, it's the purpose behind the tradition, it's the teaching behind the tradition, and that's what matters. I'm going to give you a, cr- a classic example here, a tradition that has now since lost all meaning, which we don't really honor it anymore, which is fine. In my day and age, growing up, back when I was a kid, not that long ago, but it, you know, the way that society is so rapidly advancing, it feels like forever ago, we were taught from, I mean, as I'm talking early, early, early age, when you go inside, hats off, okay? So you as a kid, you're out playing ball, you're out playing kickball or baseball or whatever in the field, you normally have a hat on your head to protect you from the sun, and when you come inside, the right thing to do, the proper thing to do, is to take your hat off. Now, here's the problem. That's a tradition that my parents' generation honored. It's a tradition that the generation before my parents honored. Going back, who knows how far. You know what? I was never taught why. Why do we do that? And so I dutifully would always take my hat off, have hat hair sticking straight up, you know, and everybody would make fun. Oh, look at silly boy with his hat hair. But that's, I would put it on to keep you from the horror of my hair sticking straight on an end, but I was taught to take it off. That's something that we now, with the current generation, 
don't even bother to teach. Because our generation, that's people my age growing up, we don't even know what it means. We honored it, but probably by this point in time, not so much. And it doesn't really matter. We have sons who wear baseball hats. They want to go inside, wear their hat inside. Like, I don't even really know what it means anymore, so you can just wear your hat. I don't care. And now the tradition is losing meaning. It lost meaning a long time ago, but now the practice of it is altogether dying. What is the purpose of this tradition? What is its source? You might be shocked to learn that it's actually biblical. It comes from the Victorian era. Some of you are wondering how long ago is that? That's a long, long time ago. We're talking 1700s and early 1800s, long time ago. The idea was that, and it's based in Corinthians, specifically that thorny passage, which I'm not going to exegete this for you today. I'm just going to allude to it. And don't ask me about it after worship, okay? (laughs) It's in this passage in Corinthians in which Paul says, you know, men have short hair, that's their glory. Women have long hair. That's their glory. And men shouldn't wear hats because they are supposed to worship God with their heads uncovered. And God has given long hair to women as a covering for them because of the angels. You know, that's essentially what the passage says. <laughs> Lydia is laughing. Because I've been asked about this before. What does that mean? Don't ask me today, okay? I, I don't want to get into all of that. The idea was, and what Paul is, the, the general thrust of the paragraph of that whole chapter in Corinthians is simply this. God has created us as men and women. We're unique. Our gender, which the Lord has given to us, is a unique fundamental part of our identity, who we've been created as. It's part of who we are. I am not a woman. I was actually just talking to Patty this morning. I could never really see myself being a woman. You know, she was sharing about some of the struggles of being pregnant, and I'm just like, yeah... That's good that I'm not pregnant and <laughs> never will be pregnant. That's good. And I'm thinking that's, that's good for me because I'm a guy. And my wife, I think one of the things that she longs for and still longs for is the joy of being pregnant. I see women going through this stuff and I'm like, <laughs> and my wife sees women going through pregnancy and she's like, oh, I wish I had that, you know. And that's because she's a woman, and I'm a man. And our gender is fundamental to how we've been made by the Father. And it's good to be a man, and it's good to be a woman. And here's the thing. Paul, however you want to look at all that stuff he's saying there in Corinthians, is basically touching on the fact that as we live together, men and women, women have a particular glory, and men have a particular glory, And it's not that one is better than the other or one is cooler than the other or anything like that or that somehow men are more valuable than women. Nothing at all like that is what is being said there. What is being said is that men should have a proper respect for themselves, who they have been created by God, and they should have a proper respect for women as they have been created by God, and vice versa. Women should have a proper appreciation for themselves and a proper respect for themselves and a proper respect for men as we've all been created as we are by the Lord traditional sort of old school thing was that the men worked out in the fields, brought in the bacon, brought in the crops, and women supported the household by working indoors. And so as you go outdoors to work outside, you wear a hat because you don't want to get sunburned. And when you come indoors, well, 
the covering that belongs properly to women, the covering of long hair in the company of women, out of respect for them, out of respect for the way that God has made them and the honor he has bestowed upon them. Who are we to wear hats with a sort of an extra covering when we should be paying proper respect and honor to the women who have been given the covering to wear? So men worked outside, of course, the threat of sunburn. You don't want that, so you wear a hat to keep yourself from the sunburn. You come inside where the women folk are, you take your hat off to show honor and respect to them for the way God has made them. And if you're out in the fields working and you run into a woman, it was abbreviated, but it used to be if you were in the presence of a female person out in the field, you took your hat off. And what that eventually abbreviated to, because men are fundamentally lazy, is we just sort of, we, if we were going to still show respect, we were going to just tip our hat, you know, like just kind of tip your hat. And it was like this, you know. And then eventually we got too, it was just too much effort to just kind of do that. So we just sort of pulled down on the brim, you know, because we can't get the muscle to get the hat off. And now it's just like a woman walks up, we're just like, not even going to take my hat off, you know. Not even going to. It's too much effort to get my hand up there, you know. We've lost the meaning behind the tradition. We've lost the understanding that it's a, a term of honor. It's, a, it's an expression of honor. It's an expression of respect. And so now we don't do it anymore. The tradition had meaning, and the meaning was right. And therefore, the tradition was honoring and glorifying the Lord. But here's the thing. Lord Jesus says you will worship him, the Father, the Lord your God, with all your mind. Which means if we don't use our mind in the understanding of our traditions, sooner or later the traditions themselves become meaningless and useless. The act of the tradition itself becomes just extraneous extra effort that makes no sense. And eventually it will fall away. But the tradition as originally presented was good and honoring to the Lord. So you go back to Matthew 15. You're quick to jump to the notion that Jesus is just going to say forget all traditions. But in point of fact... What he's about to teach is that there's a tradition that should be in place which you should properly be honoring. His statement to them is, because their, their thing is, you're breaking the tradition of the elders. <gasps> the elders, not the elders. Yes, the tradition of the elders by washing, not washing your hands before you eat, thus leading to ritual impurity. Because we smart guys in all our wisdom, we came up with this tradition. Now look at Jesus' response. His statement is, in response to the authority of the elders, verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus puts it square on the nose. You're breaking what the elders have taught. His statement is, your tradition, it's not necessarily that you're just the most heinous, wicked people in the world for wanting to wash your hands before you eat. That's a good hygienic practice. But the point here is that your traditions sometimes lose sight of the God who ought to stand behind everything. Your tradition sometimes loses sight of the heart of the Father, and that's what he's going to drive home. They're saying, we're elders, we have the right to make these traditions, and he's saying, God is the one who is to be worshipped, God is the one who is to be honored, and whenever we establish any practice or any tradition, we should do so with a view to what he desires and where his heart is. His statement, the way he first responds, these guys just want to come in and play some kickball, I'm telling you. They're kind of hovering out there outside. Please, can we come in? 
His statement is, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And it becomes a question of value. In our traditions, do we want to honor the Lord? Or in our traditions, do we just want to honor our traditions? And he's going to drive that home with a case in point of just how much this respect for the elders and whatever crazy traditions they've thought up has taken precedence over the heart of God. He's going to begin. Verse 4. God commanded. This is explicit. God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Okay? So we've got a positive and we've got a negative. The positive is going to come from Exodus chapter 20, and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment specifically, you shall honor your father and your mother. Then there's the antithesis, there's the negative of that commandment. This is going to come from Exodus chapter 21, and again it's going to be verbalized in the law in Leviticus chapter 20. And the teaching there is anybody who curses father or mother should surely die. So number one, you are called by God positively to honor your mom and dad. Negatively, you are forbidden by God in the commandment of God. You are forbidden from cursing them. Okay, that's the teaching of the Lord. The Lord's teaching here is that you are to honor and not curse your parents. They have a tradition. His statement is, God commanded these things, verse 5, but you say if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. You say that if you just make this statement to your father, Corbin, that's the, sort of the abbreviated statement there. It's kind of the same thing is happening as with our, our hat sort of, you know, now we don't have to get the full explanation. We'll just say, Corbin. And if you can just make that statement to your parents, then you don't have to honor them. If you just utter this word, Corbin, apparently you don't need to honor them anymore. You have to do some historical digging to figure out what's going on here. When Jesus says in verse 5, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father or his mother. They had this practice where, you know, your parents... They raise you, they give you birth, they raise you, you come to full adulthood. They don't have RRSPs, there's no Canadian pension plan, there's nothing like this. It's an agricultural society, but the expectation is quite clear that, you know, as your mom and dad get to a certain point where they are elderly and infirm, they're not able to take care of themselves anymore, the idea is that you'll look after your parents. They're your parents, you honor them, you respect them, you take care of them, you meet their needs. Many of us have this tradition alive and well today. When mom and dad gets old, we're going to take care of them. Either we're going to bring them into our home to look after them, or we're going to uh, maybe together with other siblings, you know, pay for them to go into a really nice uh, nursing home or something of that effect. What they had going on here is, if your parents get to a point to where they become elderly or infirm, you could make a statement to them that the money you would normally use, the money that you would have liked to have utilized to take care of them, to provide for them, is going to be given to God. In other words, the money that I normally would use to meet your needs, to feed you, to clothe you, take care of you, whatever the case may be, I can't do that for you anymore because I'm making this promise that my money will be given to either the temple or the maintenance of the priests or, you know, whatever other kinds of things they could have utilized that money for from the temple treasury. At the end of the day, what they're saying is they're going to take that money and give it to the Lord. 
Right then? No. And here's where it gets really sticky. If you really research this law, you just make this statement to your mom and dad. You don't have to write the check to the church right then. You could keep your money. You could even utilize that money to advance your financial position, the buying and selling of fields and whatever other economic activities they might have engaged in. You could utilize that money to provide for the needs of your family, to provide for, to, to enhance your economic standing so long as when you died, it was firmly in your will, in your estate planning, if you will, that it would go to the Lord. We're, we're not talking about them saying, okay, I need to take care of mom and dad, so I'm going to give this to the Lord instead, so I'm going to write a check and be done with it. We're talking about them just saying, I'm not going to take care of you because that would be a financial drain on my resources and I want to advance my economic position as much as possible and incidentally benefit from that during this lifetime with the expectation though, however, that when I die, I'll give it to the Lord. That's the practice of Corbin. So mom and dad are still alive and we still have all our money but we're not going to burden ourselves with the care of our parents under the pretense that we're going to give our money to the Lord when we die and we're going to call this worship. I have a wonderful father-in-law and a wonderful mother-in-law. My wife is the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth. I sincerely mean that. And she's great. She's perfect. She's perfect for me. We're Christians. We love the Lord. Her parents, my in-laws, are not. When my in-laws get to a certain age that they cannot take care of themselves anymore, hypothetically, I could say to my parents, in-law. Sorry, mom and dad. Beautiful wife. Thank you so much for raising Shanti. I'm a minister. I'm a pastor, serving the Lord. And uh, I don't make very much money. And I am working to serve the Lord, and I don't make very much money doing that. And you know what? I even live in a totally different country now. All the sort of nuances of back and forth currency, IRS, CRA, everybody wants my money. I love you, but, and they're not believers, I could say to them, you know, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, the true God. And this is just a regrettable set of circumstances that have befallen us. And I could just twist the point that much more and say to them, maybe, you know, things would have been different if you had worshiped the Lord too. Now, everything on the periphery of that is true. I'm a pastor. I don't make much money. I live in a different country. Everybody wants me to file a tax return, take some of their money. They live in a different country, different healthcare system, 
all of this sort of stuff, all totally true. It is also true when I say to them, maybe things would have been different if you had worshiped the Lord. But here's the thing. As much as my gospel testimony would be true in that statement in terms of the propositions I'm making to my mom and my dad, it's still a lie. Because even though everything I'm saying about God in heaven is true, and everything I say to them is technically correct, it misses the heart of the Father. And to say something like that would be similar to what these guys were saying. I might as well be saying to my in-laws, Corbin, it's given to the Lord. And you know what's even more interesting? My parents and my in-laws, for this matter, they're great, wonderful people. They love their children. They sacrifice for their kids. They give the world for me and Shanti and my brothers and sisters. My parents, even if I were to never say that to my parents, my parents would probably say to me, Josh, we know you're a pastor. We know you don't make much money. Don't worry about us. My parents would probably say that to me. And it's not too much of a stretch of imagination to think that Caiaphas or some of these guys in the royal priesthood here and amongst the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they had moms and dads just like that. Look at little Johnny. He's a Pharisee. He's making a name for himself. He's got position. He's working for the Lord. I'll starve here and not have anything to eat because he is so holy. He's giving everything to the Lord. My parents, in their own way, because they love me so much, they'd probably say that, something like that. And, and it's not a stretch of the imagination to suppose that even some of these moms and dads in this day and age are saying something like that. But I'm talking to you, Bridge Baptist Church. If you're in this room, this isn't rocket science, if you're in this room, you were bored. If you're in this room, you got a mom and a dad. And some of us might even have moms and dads who would say to us, you know, don't worry about me. I love you. I care for you. I want, I want the best for you and the grandkids. But the Lord's teaching is rather clear here. Whether our parents expect it from us, whether we are prior to today thinking this, Jesus' instruction is clear. We are called by the Father to look after our parents to make sure that they are cared for, to make sure that they are loved, to make sure that they are provided for in their old age. That is the clear implication of this teaching, which means, and for most of us in this room, we're all at the peak of our, you know, at the, we're starting out our families, we've just had kids, we've got kids, we're beginning our careers. You go home every year if your family lives far away. And you visit mom and dad. You take the grandkids. You get in the car. You drive the, you know, for some of us, that could be a long drive cross country all the way back east or wherever. Some of us are from Saskatchewan. We're like, I don't even want to go back to where I'm from. It doesn't matter. Go back for mom. <laughs> go back for mom. I saw a thing on Facebook the other day. Somebody was like, I'm flying to Manitoba. And somebody commented, did you get on the wrong plane? <laughs> 
Mom and dad live in Manitoba. That's where you got to go. Listen, the teaching of Jesus is clear. The teaching of Christ is explicit. These parents raised you. They loved you. It's fascinating because in this passage, they're saying, you're not respecting the elders. And Jesus turns around and he says, who's not really respecting elders here? Who's not really honoring their parents in this situation? You're implementing a policy which has caused us to lose sight of the Lord. You have implemented doctrines which have led us away from a true knowledge of who God is. And in the midst of all your traditions, in the midst of all of your teachings and practices that you claim are also wise, by turning to what you are teaching and turning our eyes away from what the Father has said, what has happened is we are actually not honoring our elders at the most fundamental level that we ought to be. And that brings me to the final point today here, Bridge Baptist Church. Moms and dads absolutely are a gift from the Lord. Moms and dads are precious, wonderful things. All of us can probably at some point in time point to some experience in our life where moms and dads, loving us to the best that they knew how, may have done things or may have taught us things or may have implemented practices or traditions which, looking back on it, we were scarred by those things. We were horrified. Oh my goodness, I can't believe my mom and dad made me do this. And I just want you to know, no matter what horror story, we've all got them, no matter what horror story you have, my wife has worse. Okay? For those of you who know Shanti and how she was raised, ain't nobody in here going to beat what I got. Okay? Nobody in here going to beat what my wife has. And yet, the word of God is clear. Regardless of how we may have been traumatized by our moms and dads, it wasn't that bad. And even if it was really bad, it does not make null and void the clear word of God. We're called to honor them. This month in studio, we're in June, starting next week, we're working with your kids through the process of financial management. Yes, at a young age. And one of the things we're teaching, you've got to learn how to save. You've got to learn how to meet your expenses. You've got you to tithe, give to the Lord. One of the things we're trying to teach your kids in the studio this month is we want them to begin learning now good money management practices so that when they are adults, they've started their first job, they've begun their career, they will have the wherewithal to honor the Lord by providing for you as you get older. And for some of us in this room, we're thinking, I don't need my kids. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm looking out for me, myself, and I. Don't rob your children of that blessing. Don't allow your pride and in your proud thinking where you say to yourself, I can take care of myself just know that none of that is from the Father. That's pride that says, I don't need anyone, I don't need anything. And the way that the Lord has organized this world with moms and fathers who will sacrifice for their kids is that in the sacrifice, kids will grow up to realize that they also should sacrifice for their kids and honor their mother and their father. Time has gotten away from us this morning. There is still some more things we need to say about this text. But this is important, and this is true.
in this room as well. I'll come back and finish this up next week. Some of us in this room, we don't have kids. Some of us in this room, we don't, we no longer have our mothers and our fathers with us. Look around. There's lots of kids for you to adopt, to love, to pour into. There's ample opportunity for you to get involved in a Sunday school class, nursery, Studio 32-7, what have you. There's lots of opportunity for you to sacrifice for the blessing and the betterment of your children. For those of you who are no longer, uh, for those of you who never had kids, that's something you can do. For those of you in this room who might yourselves be without mom and dad, your parents have passed. Let me, for those of you who are elderly in this room, would you let me be a son to you? Would you let me care for you? Would you allow me the honor of looking after you and coming to your house when you are no longer able to clean out the gutters? Would you allow me the privilege of being a son to you? And for the elderly in this room, would you allow everyone in this room to have that privilege, to be a son or a daughter to you? A number of years ago, four or five years ago, there's a gentleman in this church whom I love dearly, care a great deal about this man. He's been a voice of wisdom in my life. A number of years ago, we were talking over coffee, and he said to me, you know, he had just retired, and he was kind of nervous about his finances, you know. When you retire, you go through this whole transition where you used to get up and go to work every morning, and now you're trying to sort out, your, what do I do? I get up at the normal time every morning, but I don't have anything to do. And you kinda, it's, a, it's an interesting transition for, for retired folks who, just hit, who are just retiring. And, and one of the things that was stressing him out was, you know, you know, how will I continue to like pay my bills? You know, he's trying to sort out all the budgets and management of his finances. And he seemed to worry that there might be something catastrophic that would happen where he would be out on the streets. And I just said to him, I said, you know, my friend, you'll never be out on the streets. Ever. I love you. I want to honor you. If push comes to shove, you know, it's kind of crowded at my house, but I'd find room. If push comes to shove, you need someone to drive you to your doctor's appointments. You need somebody to be there when you're having your tests run. I'll be there. And we're a relatively young church. Listen to me, guys. You want to know what it is to worship the Father? You want to know what it is to walk with him? Jesus is going to say, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and they're worshiping in vain because they're teaching stuff that I didn't teach. We're going to get to that next week. You want to walk with the Lord. You want to know what it is to have a relationship with him and to grow deeper in that relationship with him? It's organized religion. But commit yourself to making yourself a son or a daughter of some of the elderly among us and loving them. That's what the Father would have you to do. Let's bow for a word of prayer.